Welcome to Act, Declaration, and Testimony for the Whole of our Covenanted Reformation from the Reformed Presbytery. We are going to begin reading at page 158 in the PDF file. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.puritandownloads.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle Timothy says to as the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of the Act and Declaration and Testimony, we, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the way and the truth and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by him. Gospel of John chapter 14 verse 6. The iniquity of attempting to destroy the necessary distinction between the providential and preceptive will of God in the matter of magistracy appears from God's express disallowance of some whom providence had actually exalted to the supreme command over a people. Ezekiel 21.27 states, I will overturn, and so forth. Although this may have an ultimate respect to Christ, yet it has also a reference to the rightful governors of Judah when dispossessed of their right by the providential will of God. And here the Lord threatens the execution of his judgments upon the unjust possessor. See also Amos 6.13, Habakkuk 2.5 and 6, Nahum 3.4 and 5, and Matthew 26.52, by all which it appears that the supreme lawgiver states a real difference between those who are only exalted by the providential will of God and not authorized by his preceptive will, and therefore it is impossible that the office and authority of them both can equally arise from and agree to the precept. Again, in Hosea, 8.4 They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. It is this distinction shown as with the brightness of a sunbeam, so that he that runs may read it. The Lord by his prophet here charges his people with horrid apostasy in char changing both the ordinances of the magistracy and the ministry particularly, although the Lord commanded, if they would set up kings, they should set up none but whom he chose. Deuteronomy 
yet they had no regard to this law. This charge seems to have respect to the civil constitution among the ten tribes after their revolt from the house of David, not simply charging the revolt on them, but that after their succession they did not consult God, nor act according to his precept in their setting up of kings. As nothing can happen in the world but by the course of providence, and as all things are known unto God in respect of his omniscience, the text cannot respect either of these. The true import of the charge, then, is they have set up kings, but not according to the law and preceptive will of God, and therefore he neither did nor would approve either them or their kings. Hence the prophet char charges this as one cause of their national destruction. Here, then, it is undeniably evident that God himself establishes that distinction pleaded for, and it is therefore most wicked to assert, as the seceders do, that it is altogether groundless and absurd. Again, this text discovers that all kings that are set up and acknowledged by civil society are not agreeable to the preceptive will of God, or as such approved by him, as they have falsely asserted. For here the Lord declares that Israel had set up kings that were not agreeable to his precept, and the charge respects their authority, the very deed of constitution. To say then that all providential magistrates are also preceptive is directly to give the God of truth the lie. Moreover, this plainly intimates that all such providential magistrates as are not set up in agreeableness to the precept are disallowed and condemned by God, and therefore God commands to put away the carcasses of such kings as because of the blind consent of civil society were little better than adored by the people. Ezekiel 43.9 that he might dwell in the midst of them forever. And therefore he declares it the sin, and so the cause of the people's ruin, as in the above text, and also in Hosea 5.11, Ephraim is oppressed, because he willingly walked after the commandment, deliberately and implicitly followed every wicked ruler set up by civil society. It is but a perverting and abusing the above text to plead that it is only a condemnation of Israel for not consulting the Lord in making choice of their kings, but no condemnation of them for setting them up and acknowledging them in contradiction to the Lord's choice as plainly laid before them in his preceptive will. And it is very contradictory to acknowledge it a sin not to consult God and yet to assert that it is a matter of indifference as to the validity of their office, whether his counsel be followed or not, which it must be, if, as their principle bears, the being of the magistrate's office and authority is equally good and valid, when contrary as when agreeable to the commanding will of God. But if, as is granted, it be a sin not to consult God in the choice of magistrates. It must needs be a great aggravation thereof, after consulting him, to reject and contemn his counsel and openly contradict his positive command 
by constituting kings in opposition to his declared will, which is evidently the sin charged upon Israel, and the reason why he disclaims all such. And therefore, according to that known and approved rule, that wherever any sin is forbidden and condemned in Scripture, there the contrary duty is commanded and commended. It follows that the setting up of rulers in opposition to the express command of God, being here condemned, the contrary duty is commended, namely, a disowning of all such rulers. For if it be a sin to set up rulers and not by God, it must also be a sin to acknowledge them when so set up. In regard, it is a continuing in and approving of the sin of that wicked erection, although such an acknowledgment may indeed be agreeable to their principle, which gives to the creature a prerogative above the Creator. From the whole it may appear already what reason the Presbytery have for testifying against the cedars, for maintaining such a corrupt doctrine, a doctrine which they very justly acknowledge on page 87, cannot be established but by the overthrow of this distinction between the providential and preceptive will of God, a distinction that as they shall never be able to overturn by all their impotent and impious attacks, so it will to all ages stand as a strong bulwark, inviolably defending the truth here contended for by the Presbytery. Fourth, the Presbytery testify against this anti-government principle of the secession as being contradictory to and inconsistent with the Reformation principles and covenanted obligations, whereby these nations, in agreeableness to the law of God, bound themselves to maintain all the ordinances of God in their purity according to their original institution in the scriptures of truth. The seceding scheme, as it has been noticed formerly, is that whomsoever the bulk of the nation or body politics set up and providence proves auspicious and favorable to, is the lawful magistrate to be owned and submitted to for conscience sake. The inconsistency of which tenet with Reformation principles may appear from viewing and comparing therewith the coronation oath. James the sixth Parliament one cap eight, where it is ordained as a condition sine qua non that all kings, princes, and magistrates shall at their installment solemnly swear to maintain the true religion of Jesus Christ and oppose all false religions. So also James the sixth Parliament one cap ninth which ordains that no person may be a judge or member of any court that professes not the true religion. Also Charles I, Parliament 2, Session 2nd, Act 14, it is ordained that before the king be admitted to the exercise of his royal power, he shall give satisfaction to the king anent the security of religion. And so the same Parliament, Act 15, 1649, express themselves, referring to the coronation oath above mentioned, the estates of Parliament judging it necessary that the prince and people be of one perfect religion, a point 
that all kings and princes who shall reign or bear rule within this realm shall, at the receipt of their princely authority, solemnly swear to observe in their own persons and to preserve the religion as it is presently established and professed. And they ordained that before the king's majesty, who now is, or any of his successors, shall be admitted to the exercise of his royal power, he shall, by and toward the foresaid oath, declare by his solemn oath, under his hand and seal, his allowance of the national covenant, and of the solemn league and covenant, and obligation to prosecute the ends thereof in his station and calling, and that he shall consent and agree to acts of parliament, enjoining the solemn league and covenant, and fully establishing Presbyterian government, the directory for worship, confession of faith, and catechisms approved by the General Assembly of this Kirk and Parliament of this Kingdom, and that he shall observe these in his own practice and family, and shall never make opposition to any of these, or endeavor any change thereof. Like as the Estates of Parliament discharge all the leeches and subjects of this Kingdom to procure or receive His Majesty or receive from His Majesty any commissions or gifts whatsoever, until His Majesty shall give satisfaction, as said is, under the pain of being censured in their persons and estates, as the Parliament shall judge fitting. And if any such commissions or gifts be procured or received by any of these subjects before such satisfaction, the Parliament declares and ordains all such, and all that shall follow thereupon, to be void and null. And the same session, Act 26th, it is short ordained, that none shall bear any place of public trust in the nation but such as have the qualifications God requires in His word. Thus, in the prefatory part of the Act, they say, the estates of Parliament taking into consideration that the Lord our God requires that such as bear charge among his people should be able men, fearing God, hating covetousness, and dealing truly, and that many of the evils of sin and punishment under which the land groans have come to pass because hitherto they have not been sufficiently provided and cared for, and so forth and afterward in the statutory part, do therefore ordain that all such as shall be employed in any place of power and trust in this kingdom shall not only be able men, but men of known affection unto, and of approved fidelity and integrity in the cause of God, and of a blameless Christian conversation, and so forth. To the same purpose, Act 11th, Parliament 2nd, Session 3rd, entitled Act for Purging the Army. See also the Coronation Oath of Scotland, as subscribed by Charles II at Schoon, 1650. All which, and many other fundamental laws of the like nature, made in time of Reformation, show the principles of our Reformers to have been quite different from those of seceders, anent civil government, and that, too, constitute lawful magistrates, they must of necessity have scriptural and covenant qualifications, besides the consent of the people. 
With what face, then, can they pretend to have adopted a testimony for Reformation principles and to be of the same principles with our late Reformers? The vanity of this pretense will further appear by comparing their principles with the Solemn League and Covenant, with every article of which they are inconsistent. They profess the moral obligation of the covenants, and yet, at the same time, maintain the lawfulness of every providential government, whether popish or prelatic, if set up by the body politic. But how opposite this to the first article, obliging constantly to endeavor the preservation of the reformed religion. Can it be consistent therewith to commit the government of the nations to be a sworn enemy to the Reformation? Or with that sincerity which becomes the professors of Christ to plead the lawfulness of an authority raised upon the overthrow of the reformed religion? No less opposite is it to the second article, which obliges, and that without respect of persons, to endeavor the extirpation of popery, prelacy, to maintain and plead for the lawfulness of that which establishes or supports prelacy or popery in the nations. This appears rather like a sincere endeavor in them to promote whatever is contrary to sound doctrine and the power of true godliness, and that because an apostate people approves thereof, contrary to Exodus 23.2, thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Again, the third article binds to preserve the rights of parliaments and the liberties of the kingdoms and the king's authority in the preservation and defense of the true religion. But how inconsistent is it therewith to own and defend an authority that in its constitution and habitual series of administration is destructive of all those precious and valuable interests. It is full of contradiction and a mocking both of God and the world to pretend to own and defend the destroyers of the true religion in the defense of religion as seceders do in their mock acknowledgment of such as are sworn to maintain prelacy in opposition to the reformed religion. The contradictoriness of this principle of theirs to the fourth article needs no illustration. Again, the owning of an authority which is reared up and stands upon the footing of the destruction of the covenanted union and uniformity of the nations in religion can never be consistent with the fifth article which binds to an endeavoring that these kingdoms may remain conjoined in that firm covenanted union to all posterity. In like manner, as the sixth article obliges to a defending of all that enter into the League and Covenant, and never to suffer ourselves to be divided and make defection to the contrary part, it must be a manifest contradiction thereto, not only to defend such as are enemies to that covenant, but even in their opposition thereto. And it is a making defection to the contrary part, and from that cause and covenant with a witness to plead the lawfulness of the national constitution which is established upon the ruins of a covenanted work of reformation as seceders do, whose principle and practice in opposition to what is professed in the conclusion of the covenant 
as well as what was the very design of entering into it, is instead of a going before others, in the example of a real reformation, a corrupting of the nations more and more, and going before them in the example of a real apostasy and defection from the reformation, so solemnly sworn to be maintained in this covenant, and a teaching of them to appoint themselves a captain to return to their anti-Christian bondage. Upon the whole, as the Presbytery ought to testify against this new scheme of principles respecting the ordinance of magistracy, they therefore, upon all the grounds formerly laid down, did, and hereby do declare, testify against and condemn the same, and what is, indeed, a new and dangerous principle, truly anti-government, introductory of anarchy and confusion, of apostasy and defection from the covenanted work of reformation, the principles by which it was carried on and maintained, and acts and laws by which it was fenced and established, and what is flatly opposite to and condemned by the word of divine revelation in many express and positive precepts and approved examples, agreeable thereto, as well as by our solemn national covenants, founded upon and agreeable to said word of divine revelation. And finally, let this be further observed, that as it was a beautiful branch of our glorious reformation, that the civil government of this nation was modeled agreeable to the word of God, and that the right of regal government was constituted, bounded, and fixed by an unalterable law consonant to the word of God, and sworn to be inviolably preserved both by king and people, so the associate brethren, by their doctrine on this head, which is inconsistent with our uncontroverted establishment and fundamental laws, excluding from the throne all papists and prelatists, have counteracted a most important point of the covenant reformation and opened a wide door to Jacobitism. For if everyone is bound to acknowledge implicitly any government, in fact, that prevails, then, if a party in these nations should rise up and set a popish pretender on the throne, according to their doctrine, all should be obliged to subject to him, and it would be sinful to impugn the lawfulness of his authority, although that, by being popish, he is destitute of the essential qualifications required of a king, not only by the word of God, but by the national constitution and laws, in order to make him a lawful sovereign to these nations. Second, the Presbytery testify against the associate Presbytery, now called Synod, for their wrongdoing, perverting and misapplying the blessed scriptures of truth in many texts in order to support their erroneous tenet, namely that the word of God requires no qualifications as essential to the being of a lawful Christian magistrate, but that whosoever are set up, and while they continue to be acknowledged by civil society, are lawful magistrates, though destitute of scripture qualifications, and acting in a manifest opposition to the revealed will of and law of God. The texts of scripture used by them, 
do prove this general proposition, namely, that it is the duty of the people of God to obey and submit to lawful rulers in their lawful commands, and that it is utterly unlawful and sinful to oppose such lawful authority. But none of these texts quoted by them prove that it is the duty of the people of God, blessed with the knowledge of his revealed will, to submit to and obey for conscience sake an authority that is sinful and opposite to the revealed will of God, both in its constitution and general course of administration. Nor do they prove that a prelatical, erastian, or popish government is a lawful government, either expressly or by right of necessary consequence over a na people who either do, collectively considered as a church and nation, or are bound to profess all the parts of the true religion, and to maintain all the divine ordinances in their purity. Nor do they prove that any can be lawful rulers over these Christians and covenanted nations who want the essential qualifications required by the word of God, the covenants and fundamental laws of the kingdom, or that it is sinful in the people of God to say so much in testifying against the joint and national apostasy from God and the purity of religion. Particularly, the first text they adduce is Proverbs 26.21. My son, fear thou the Lord and the King, and meddle not with them that are given to change. It is granted that the scripture enjoins all those duties that, in a consistency with the fear of the Lord, a people owe to their rightful kings. But nothing can be more absurd than to extend the command to the, all that bear the name of kings, who are acknowledged by a nation as kings, and while they do so own them, though their constitution should be most anti-Christian, and they justly chargeable with unparalleled evils, not only in their private character, but in their public conduct, be they idolaters, adulterers, blasphemers, Sabbath-breakers, murderers, invaders, and avowed usurpers of the throne, crown, and scepter, and incommunicable prerogatives of Christ, the glorious King of Zion, setting themselves in the temple of God, and exalting themselves above all that is called God, by dispensing with his laws, and in place thereof substituting their own wicked laws, whereby they establish iniquity and enjoin under severe penalties the profanation of the name, day, and ordinances of the Lord. This command must certainly be understood in a consistency with the duty and character of one that is resolved to be an inhabitant of the Lord's holy hill, Psalm 15, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. It must be consistent with the fear of the Lord, which can stand very well with the fearing and honoring all who are really kings, but a flat contradiction thereto to fear every vile person because it is the will of civil society to set him up in the character of king, till therefore seceders prove either that kings are under no obligation to obey the law of God themselves, and so not liable to its sanction and penalty, in case of disobedience, or then that the favor and approbation of civil society can justify a dispensing with the law of God, 
they will never be able to prove from this nor any other text that such as are guilty of any crime declared capital in the word of truth have a right entitled to that fear honor and obedience that is due to lawful kings even though they are acknowledged by civil society and so this text makes nothing for but against their darling tenant and their explication thereof is evidently a resting of scripture making it speak in their favor contrary to the scope and meaning of the holy spirit therein and their invidious insinuation that all who differ from their opinion do likewise depart from the fear of the lord is but a further evidence of their abuse of scripture while it is at the same time utterly false See Mr. Knox's History, page 422, First Book of Discipline, Cap 10 and 11. A second text abused for supporting their forementioned principles, Ecclesiastes 10.4. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. As formerly, so here they assert that this text refers to any rulers presently acknowledged by the civil society and that the rising of the ruler's spirit must be understood as groundless and so sinful and necessarily comprehends any wrath or wrong that a subject may meet with unjustly at the ruler's hand upon personal or religious accounts that yet notwithstanding the subject in the use of lawful endeavors for his own vindication must continue in subjection and obedience to the ruler in lawful commands while the civil state continues to acknowledge him and this as the only habile mean of convincing the ruler of his error and preventing further evils but as the reason which they there allege does not necessarily conclude and prove this rising of spirit in the ruler to be sinful so the whole of their application and gloss built upon it is invalidated and moreover is a condemnation of the principles and practice of our reformers and sufferers for the cause and truths of christ in the late times when they left their place of subjection and took up arms in defense of their religion liberties and lives their explication is also self-inconsistent for if this rising of spirit necessarily comprehends any wrath or wrong on personal or religious accounts then there must be a yielding or keeping the place of subjection not only in lawful commands but in all matters whether lawful or not otherwise this yielding cannot be supposed to answer the end designed for though a subject should yield in all other particulars yet unless he also yield in that particular on which the rising of the ruler's spirit is grounded his yielding cannot pacify the ruler's wrath so all the subjection they contend the sufferers gave particularly in the beginning of the late persecution to the then rulers did not nor could pacify their wrath because they would not give up with their conscience and all their all religion which was the very foundation of the rising of his spirit against them though according to their explication of the text this was what they should have done and so have pacified the ruler's wrath it is but a mere shift to tell the world that it is only in matter lawful matters they are to yield the yielding must surely correspond to the rising of the spirit spoken of 
but with such deceitful shifts are they forced to cover over a doctrine which, if presented in its native dress, would not meet with such ready reception. But in opposition to their strained interpretation of the text, the ruler must be understood to be a lawful ruler, who is the minister of God for good, one who has not only moral abilities for government, but also a right to govern and as a subject may be keeping his place of subjection to a righteous ruler and yet be guilty in his private or, or public character of what gives just offense and occasions the ruler's spirit justly and so not sinfully to rise against him. Thus one may be guilty of many criminal mismanagements in the discharge of his public trust, guilty of profaning the name of God or his day, or of riot, excessive drinking, and so forth, without having any thought of casting off the authority of his ruler. So when a person has hereby provoked the spirit of his ruler, this divine precept teaches the party offending not to aggravate his offense by attempting, though able, to make good his part, or rebel against his sovereign, but to yield, acknowledge his guilt and trespass, and submit to such punishments as the lawful ruler shall justly inflict, according to the degree and quality of the offense, whereby only the ruler will be satisfied. Agreeable to this is the par that parallel text in Ecclesiastes 8, 2, and 3, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God, be not hasty to go out of his sight, stand not in an evil thing. On the whole, it must be a great abuse of Scripture to wrest a divine precept which directs subjects to submit to such punishments as their lawful ruler shall justly lay them under for their offenses to the support of this anti-scriptural notion, namely, that every wicked person whom the majority of a nation advances to the supreme rule is the minister of God, to whom obedience is due under pain of eternal damnation, as is done with this text. A third scripture perverted to support the above principle is Luke 20, verse 25. Render therefore to Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. From this, seceders imagined strongly to fortify their cause, but from a just view of the text, it will appear that the answer given by Christ contains no acknowledgment of Caesar's title to tribute or of his authority as lawful. It is beyond doubt that the question was captious and that the design of the scribes and Pharisees in proposing it to Christ was to have him ensnared in his words. This they thought themselves sure of, whether he should answer positively or negatively. For if positively, and so recognize and acknowledge Caesar's title, then they would have occasion to accuse him to the people as an enemy to the laws, liberty, and honor of the Jewish nation. This is evident from verse 26, and they could not take hold of his words before the people. And then, if he should deny that it was lawful, they would have an opportunity or pretense of delating and delivering him to the Roman governor as an enemy to Caesar. 
They seem, however, to have been confident that he who taught the way of God and truth without regard to any would never inculcate it as a duty for them to give tribute to Caesar, subjection to whom, as their lawful governor, for conscience' sake, was so contrary to the divine law given to the Jews respecting their magistrates, and if so, they would not miss a sufficient accusation against him. But here infinite wisdom shone forth, in giving such an answer as declared their wisdom to be but folly, and at once disappointed all their malicious hopes, an answer which left Caesar's claim unresolved, as to any positive determination whether it belonged to him or not. The question is in direct terms. Our Lord does not directly answer to the question in the terms proposed by the wicked spies. He neither expressly says it is lawful or unlawful to pay it, but gave his answer in such terms as they could not from it form an accusation against him, either to the people or to the governor. He in general teaches to give Caesar all things that by the law of God were due to him, at the same time enjoining them that, under pretense of giving to men their demands, they rob not God of what was his due, namely a conscientious regard to all the laws he had given them, and universal obedience to all his commands, without regard to persons of any station. And it is certain that Caesar was a proud, aspiring, idolatrous, and bloody usurper, like the king of Babylon, Habakkuk 2.5, for which causes the Lord denounces fearful wrath and judgment against him, Habakkuk 2.7-14, having no other right to the most part of his dominions than the Lord's providential disposal, which sometimes makes the tabernacles of robbers prosper, into whose hand God bringeth abundantly, Job 12, verse 6. And for their sins gives Jacob to the spoil and Israel to the robbers, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 24. And giveth power to the beast to continue forty and two months and to have power over all nations, Revelation 13, verses 5 and 7 so that by looking into the divine law which determines everyone's due according to their char just character and of which they could not be ignorant, they might see that he had a just title to all that was due to an usurper, idolater, and murderer. That the Jewish coin did bear Caesar's image could be no evidence of his being their lawful sovereign, seeing it is most common for the greatest usurpers and tyrants to stamp their image upon the coins of their nations, the nations they tyrannize over. And though it be granted that the Jews had, by this time, consented to Caesar's usurpation, yet that could not legitimate his title, nor warrant their subjection to him, for conscience' sake, seeing they could not consent to his authority, but in express contradiction to the many plain and positive scripture precepts given by God unto them, as has been seen above. It is, therefore, violence done to the text, as also opposite to the sentiments of some eminent divines on the place, to say that it contains a command to pay tribute to Caesar, and it would bear, appear from Luke 23.2, 
that the Jews themselves did not so understand it. It may be further observed that this is not the only instance where our Lord, in infinite wisdom, declined to give direct answers to the ensnaring questions of his malicious enemies. See John 8, verses 3 through 12, Matthew 21, verses 23 through 28, John 18, verses 19 through 21, where are questions of a similar nature proposed with the same hellish intention and all answered by him in like manner, in each of which seceders might, on a good ground, as in the answer to the ancient to the question Annette tribute, say that Christ did shift and dissemble the truth, but the least insinuation of such a charge cannot be made from any of these answers without the greatest blasphemy. A fourth text used by them for maintaining their erroneous scheme is Romans thirteen one through eight. Without animadverting upon every part of their explication of this place of holy writ, it is sufficient to observe first that the power here spoken of by the apostle is not a physical but a moral power, a power that is lawful and warranted in regard of matter person, title, or investiture. A legitimacy in each of these must go to the making of a moral power, and an illegitimacy in any of these is an illegitimacy in the very being and constitution, and so a nullity to the power as moral, a making it of no authority. As the text speaks only of this moral power, so it excludes every unlawful power. See Mr. Gee on magistracy on this text. Second, that the being of God or the ordination of God, ordination God here spoke of is not a being of God providentially only, but such a being of God as contains in it his institution and appointment by the warrant of his law and precept, so that the magistrates to whom the apostle enjoins obedience are such as are set up according to the preceptive ordination and will of God, as is evinced not only by the author referred to above and other divines, but what sufficiently appears from the context with the subjection enjoined and resistance forbidden with their respective reasons are what can only be spoken with respect to powers ordained by the preceptive will of God. Again, by considering the office and duty of the powers and the end of their ordination as described verses 3 and 4, which by no means agree to any but those moral powers ordained by the preceptive will of God. It appears a manifest abuse of this text to apply it to everyone advanced by providence to the place of supreme rule, rule not only without any regard, but in direct opposition to the preceptive will of God. It is most absurd and self-contradictory in professed testimony bearers for a covenanted reformation to apply this text in a way of pleading the lawfulness of an Erastian, anti-Christian constitution, 
that is destitute of all those qualifications already mentioned and always included in the scriptural definition of a lawful magistrate as necessary to constitute a moral power, namely, in regard of matter, person, title, or investiture, and so forth. But of the power which they so zealously plead for, the matter is unlawful, being Erastian, partly civil, partly ecclesiastical, by the United Constitution. The person invested with the supreme power is one who is declared incapable by the fundamental laws and covenanted constitution of the nations. The manner of investiture and terms on which the crown is held sinful, the constitution being in, in an in immediate opposition to the unalterable constitution of the kingdom of the Messiah, and founded on the destruction of the covenanted reformation. And it may be added that it is unlawful as to the exercise and application of it, which has been all along in opposition to all true religion, and a grievous oppression of the church, the kingdom of Christ, in the liberties thereof. And it must be so, for the tree must be made good before the fruit can be such, by all which it appears there is a nullity in the power as moral, being so very opposite to the revealed will of God. And from what is said, it is obvious that this scripture gives no countenance to their corrupt scheme, but furnishes with strong arguments against it. A fifth scripture adduced is Titus 3.1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, and so forth. As seceders apply this text to the same purpose and explain it in the same manner, as they have done those others above mentioned, so what is already said is sufficient to discover the deceit of their use and explication thereof. The powers and magistrates the apostle requires subjection to, are only such as are so in a moral sense, none but, but such are accounted powers and magistrates in the sense of the text. The apostle must mean the same powers here he describes in Romans 13, 1-3, and so forth. Otherwise he contradicts himself, which must not be admitted. And the powers he there speaks of are moral powers, in other words, such as have not only proper abilities for government and rule, but also a right of constitution, empowering them to use their abilities for that purpose. How can one be expected or said to be the minister of God for good, or a terror to evildoers, and a praise to them that do well, if he is so disposed and inclined as to love that which is evil and hate that which is good, and so actually is a praise to evildoers and a terror to such as do well? To suppose any such thing is to overthrow the universally established connection between cause and effect the means and the end, and so much, namely that the powers there spoken of are moral powers, seceders are forced to grant in their explication of Romans 13, say they, the text speaks only of powers in a moral sense, and this concession at once destroys their scheme, 
and confirms that the presbytery plead what the presbytery plead for, namely, that none are lawful powers but such as are so according to the preceptive will of God in his word, which certainly in the judgment of all who would deal reverently with the oracles of God is in this case a rule far preferable to the remainders of natural light in the moral dictates of right reason from which the cedars fetch the institution of this divine ordinance of magistracy and on which they settle it as on what they call the natural and eternal law of God, preferring that to the plain, perfect, and complete revelation of God's will and his word. The last text used by them is 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17, the import of which, they say, is that all who have a constitution by consent of the civil society are to be subjected to for the Lord's sake as having an institution from him, and that, however seldom they were inclined or employed in the discharge of the duties proper to their office, it may suffice to observe that while the apostle is here speaking as in the above texts of moral powers, as above described, it is evident that by every ordinance of man can only be meant the different kinds and forms of civil government and governors set up by men, to each of which the apostle exhorts to a submission, providing that in the setting up of these they acted agreeably to the general laws and rules appointed by God in his word, both respecting the constitution of government and the qualifications of governors. Then, as they bear the stamp of divine authority, they were to be submitted to for the Lord's sake. But what manifest abuse of scripture is it to allege with them that the inspired apostle exhorts to submit to every monster of iniquity, if only set up by the civil society, though perhaps guilty of a number of crimes, that by the law of God and laws of men founded thereon are punishable by a severe death. Sure, such can never have a title to that obedience which is due to the ordinance of God, who have not so much as a title to live upon the earth. Moreover, let it be considered that in the above-cited texts, the Spirit of God enjoins either that obedience and subjection that is due to lawful magistrates, or that subjection only, which is for a time, by an extraordinary and special command, such as Jeremiah 29.7, given to conquerors and usurpers, having no right but what is providential. If the first, then they cannot intend any but those moral powers who are said to be of God in respect of his approbative and preceptive will. If the last, then these texts are not the rule of obedience to lawful rulers, who are set up qualified and govern according to the law of God. But that these texts can only be understood of the first is evident from this, that in them not only is the office, duty, and end of the civil magistrate as particularly described as the obedience and subjected subjection commanded, but the one is made the foundation and the ground and reason of and inseparably connected with the other. And therefore it was that the renowned witnesses for Christ and his interest 
contended so much for reformation in the civil magistracy and magistrate in an agreeableness to the original institution of that ordinance and endured so great opposition on that account. To conclude this, as it is evident these texts give no countenance to the corrupt scheme of seceders, but always suppose the power to which subjection and obedience for conscience' sake is enjoined to be lawful in regard of matter, person, title, and so forth, so the presbytery cannot but testify against them for perverting and wresting the scriptures of truth to a favoring of their anarchical and anti-scriptural tenet, and for their so stiffly and tenaciously pleading for avowed apostasy and defection, which is the whole scope and amount of their declared scheme of politics, namely, that it is lawful for posterity to turn back to where their forefathers were, giving up with many precious truths and further attainments in reformation, valuable and necessary, acquired at the expense of much zeal, faithfulness, and treasure, and handed down to us, sealed by the Spirit of God upon the souls of his people, as his work and cause, and on public scaffolds and high places of the field, with the dearest blood of multitudes of Christ's faithful witnesses, who love not their lives unto the death. And this, in express contradiction to the land's solemn covenant engagements to the Lord, for maintaining and holding fast that whereunto we had attained. For notwithstanding all the regard and defense, seceders profess to the covenants and reformation principles, they are all the while directly pleading in defense of the same cause, advancing the same arguments to support it, and likewise giving the same corrupt and perverted explication of the above texts of Scripture that the merciless and bloody murderers and persecutors did in the late tyrannous times, tyrannous times in their stated opposition to the cause and interest of glorious Christ, together with the indulged who took part with them in opposing the kingdom and subjects of Zion's exalted king. And as pity it is, seceders have pleaded the cause of malignance, and rubbing the rust from their antiquated arguments, have presented them with a new luster. So the Presbyterian opposition thereto are satisfied to plead the same cause, with the same arguments, and to understand these scriptures in the same sense as was done by the witnesses for reformation, whom the Lord honored to seal his truth with their blood as is sufficiently confirmed from the cloud of witnesses, where their concurring testimonies are harmoniously stated upon their disowning the authority of the then anti-Christian and Erastian government, even when acknowledged by the bulk and body of the nation, both civil and ecclesiastical. Whence also it is evident that the persecution was not the cause of their casting off that authority, but that authorities assuming and usurping the royal prerogatives of Christ, the church's head, was the cause of their disowning it, and then their refusing to acknowledge foresaid authority was the cause of all their persecution. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com.
It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.